just exactly what is faith? Well, there are an awful lot of definitions out there, but we'll take a look at the one that God provides today out of the book of Haggai. Join us. Graceful Truth with Pastor Steve Converse is up next. To be sure, we all have our own views of what faith is, and there are many out there who will tell you what they believe faith to be. But here in Haggai, chapter 2, verses 20 through 23, we find ourselves looking at God's definition of faith. What is faith? What's natural faith and supernatural faith? And really, at the end of the day, we'll realize that faith is the opposite of unbelief, and Jesus always puts out unbelief. If you would like to join us, we would invite you to spend the next half hour with us for today's broadcast of Graceful Truth from Grace Bible Church in Redwood City. Our teacher and pastor now, here's Steve Converse. Follow along as I read our text this morning just out of Haggai chapter 2 verses 20 through 23. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Remember, this is the fourth of four messages. He says in verse 21, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, son of Chetiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, this is an interesting text to build a a message from. But remember, this is the same day that they just received the message that we went over last week. We don't know what the time frame difference is, whether it was an hour later or when, but it was a little bit later in the day, you might say, and uh, it was on the 18th of December, 520 B.C., our uh, modern dates. So the Lord speaks, and if you look at verse 20, it says that the Lord came a second time. He spoke again. In other words, the Lord had already spoken to Judah on this date, and it must have been an incredible time to be there. You think about it, the prophet of God bringing the message of God, and you're hearing the message of God directly through God's messenger. To hear that once would be something, but to hear it twice in the same day, telling the people of Judah what to do, uh, must have been incredible. Do you know that God can speak more than just once in a day? Sometimes I think we don't believe that. The reason I say that is we always relegate a certain time for our devotions, right? And we're faithful at it. And we maybe spend several minutes or maybe an hour or whatever with the Lord in prayer and his word. And, and we walk away from that time thinking, okay, that's it. God spoke to my heart today. Well, see, here the people heard a message from God a second time. They had it twice in one day where God was coming by his spirit through his messenger, bringing his message, telling them what they needed to do. I want to ask you this morning, have you been spoken to by God today, even yet, where you're at, where you sit? Have you been around God's word today? Have you been in a place of prayer today? Have you been seeking his face? Have you been in communion with him? I look out, I see some of your faces are glowing. That means yes, just like Moses, right? You've been in the presence of God. God has already spoken to you. 
If you've been reading the Word today, um, you must have been sure that God was speaking to your heart through His Word. And I pray and I hope that the past several weeks, if we've worked our way through this little book, that God has definitely spoken to your heart, just as He has spoken to my heart, as we've looked at some of the details and little gems that we found in this book of Haggai. I, I pray that God has been speaking to your heart. But I want to ask you, could it be that week after week as we sit here together on a Sunday morning and God speaks to our hearts, maybe that God is revealing certain things to your heart, to my heart. Maybe he's unveiling certain things through his word. Maybe God has, as he has in my life, convicted you of certain things in your life. Maybe God has been encouraging you in certain places where you have been discouraged or you have been beaten down or downtrodden uh, just from the world or your circumstances, whatever it is. I want you to understand this morning, no matter what it is, whether it's an exhortation from God's word, whether it's an encouragement from God's word, or maybe even a rebuke, I pray that God has been speaking to your hearts through his word. And my question this morning is, does God need to speak again? You see, God needed to speak again here to these people the second time on the same day. We learned that last week and the previous weeks that these people here, these Israelites... They were hearing the word of God, and we saw back in verse 1, or chapter 1, verse 14, it says that the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, and the spirit of Joshua, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. In other words, they just didn't hear or read the word of God. There was something more to it. It says that their bones were stirred by the word of God. They were moved by the Holy Spirit. They were motivated by the Spirit of God. And they began to put brick upon brick on the foundation of the temple. And they began to rebuild it. And to start the work of God afresh and anew. But we saw last week that that wasn't enough. Why was it not enough? They were stirred by the Word of God. We could be stirred by the Word of God. They maybe realized that their state before God as they did. And it made them fear. They began to do the things that they weren't doing. And maybe that's what you've been doing in the past week as God has pinpointed and put his finger right on your heart in certain areas of your life or your service to God. Maybe you've decided, I'm going to do something about this. I'm going to recommit. Well, these folks, they looked at the sky and there was no rain, even though they were obeying God. They looked at the ground and there was no crops, even though they were doing what God requested them to do. And no matter how much they obeyed the word of God or were moved by the word of God, it seemed that nothing happened. And God had to come in nearly at the end of this letter here, this small little prophet, and say this, the reason why nothing is happening is because you haven't confessed your sin. We talked about that last week. Now here we are again, and the second time, on the same day, God is coming, and you notice in verses 20 and 21 that God's message is now not delivered to the whole nation of Judah. Please look at that. It says in verse 21, who is, who is he to speak to? Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah. Who was Zerubbabel? If you remember, we noted that in verse 14 of chapter 1, that both Zerubbabel and Joshua were stirred by the word of God. Joshua was the head of all the religious and kind of ecclesiastic system of Judah, and he was the high priest. But Zerubbabel was more of the civil. He was the political leader of the whole nation, you might say. Therefore, in verse 21, we see that the fourth message was directed specifically, not to Joshua and the remnant and all the other people, but just to Zerubbabel. Why do you think that is? I think 
One of the reasons is, is that Zerubbabel, he needed encouragement. He needed special encouragement from the Lord at this point in time in his ministry. Sometimes we preach the word of God and sometimes we read the Bible and sometimes we read it in a very, uh, you might say, general way. In other words, we read this little book of Haggai and as we begin to look at these Judeans and then, you know, we see how that applies and then we jump over to Matthew and we read it as being written to Jews, showing king is the Christ, or you jump over to Mark, and that's kind of to the Greeks, or the book of Romans, it's written to the Romans, or Corinthians, it's written to the church at Corinth. See, but I think in certain times in our lives, we need to stop, and we need to come to the word of God, and we need to ask him, and we need to say, you know what, God, what is this saying to me? I understand the context, I understand why you wrote this, and all the historical background, but God, what do you have for me out of your word? There used to be a little kind of a nursery rhyme almost that uh, we used to sing in uh, Sunday school at another church I was at. It said, every promise in the book is mine, every letter, every word, every line. See, you have to understand that it's all for us. It's the word of God. And we have to come on Sunday mornings or when we do our devotions or throughout the week, whenever it is, expecting God to speak to our hearts. And when you're in need, and maybe you're sitting here this morning in great need, I don't know. I want to encourage you to get into God's word. He will will bless you and he's got everything in there for you to help you get through whatever you're going through. So Zerubbabel, the civil leader here of the Judean people, was discouraged. He was downhearted, you might say. And a lot of times, a lot of people who are involved in ministry get to that point. A lot of times, Satan often will attack leaders within God's people. And the reason he does that, because he knows if he can take the leaders down, he'll take the rest of them down. That's why in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 in the New Testament, the apostle Paul Remember who he was. I mean, we're, we're talking about an incredible man of God here. Probably the greatest Christian who ever lived. Other, you know, I mean, it's just amazing. And he, he turned to these believers. And these believers were probably half his spiritual stature. And it says in 1 Thessalonians 5.25 that he says, Brethren, what did he say? Pray for us. Pray for us. I thank God that some of you have said, you know, on Sunday mornings I pray for you, Pastor. I appreciate that. And I thank you for it. And I feel the benefit of your prayers. I want to ask you this morning, do you pray for our elders? Do you pray for our Sunday school teachers? Do we pray for the folks on the worship team? Do we pray for people who are doing the work of God in this place? Maybe they're serving God in the kitchen. Maybe they're helping in the nursery. Maybe they're doing the finances. Do we pray for these people? Because I guarantee you this, the people on the front line are the first ones to get hit. (laughs) So we need to make sure that we're praying for those who are serving the Lord. I don't know what circumstances Zerubbabel was in here, other than what, what we're told. But I bet you I can speculate a little bit. Maybe Zerubbabel was at this moment. He looked around him, and here was this little nation of Judah, just came out of captivity, absolutely discouraged from doing the work of God absolutely drained of all political, religious worth and strength. And he's standing there and he's looking around at it. And all the nations and the empires around the Medo-Persian Empire and the rising empires, the great nations that were built like a wall around Judah. And perhaps as he saw this, 
although he was in his freedom. I mean, he was free to do what God had called him to do. He came out of captivity. Perhaps he was beginning to despair a little bit. Perhaps he feared for the future remnant of the Jews at this point, the people of God, thinking, boy, I don't know what's going to happen. Look at all these nations around us, all these enemies we have. They had been downtrodden for 70 years in Babylon, got out by God's gracious hand, and they were given permission to build the temple of God. And yet they were discouraged by the Samaritans at one point. It was put off for 16 years. Then they were given permission again. But then they were also downtrodden and they were stuffed. They got just beat up by the circumstances that they found themselves in. That they couldn't even lay a finger on that temple. And so Zerubbabel is here standing here. The head of this crew that's supposed to be doing God's work. And he's looking around them. And he's looking around at those who are pressing in on him from other nations. And he looks to heaven and perhaps he despairs at the circumstances around him. I don't know. But you know what? God knew because God gave him this message. Would you agree with me that circumstances have a tendency to discourage you at times? They just do. I I don't know where you're at this morning, but I know the Holy Spirit knows. And he knows your circumstances at this very moment in time. Maybe you feel like Zerubbabel in the just despairing over your circumstances. You don't know where to turn. Those that are nearest and dearest to you, like those for Zerubbabel, the Judeans were past themselves. Your enemies are against you. Everything is against you. And you look at heaven, it's as brass, and the ground is dust. There's nowhere to turn. You're desperate. I mean, this can happen. This can happen, especially when you're trying to build God's work. When you're trying to strengthen the kingdom of God. What do you need when you get in those circumstances? What do you need? What do you need when you're feeling downtrodden and you're, you're feeling just beaten upon? Well, God gave Zerubbabel exactly what he needed in his fourth message. He needed to be encouraged. And God came beside Zerubbabel and he brought this great message to encourage the governor's faith by the faith of God. Why did he do that? Because, beloved, either you have faith or you have unbelief. Unbelief always stops and robs us of God's blessing. It always does. When we have unbelief in our life, it's always going to rob us of God's blessing. See, if Zerubbabel was to be blessed, he had to be encouraged to get out of this unbelieving state in his life. And you can't just take somebody like that and batter them over the head with a rod or the word of God or whatever. or Just tell them to believe. They have to be encouraged to believe. And when you're in the midst of despair, and maybe you're in the midst of sin or discouragement or failure or bereavement, whatever it may be, and everything seems to be coming in on you from every angle, it's no good beating somebody like that up. That's not going to do anybody any good. It's better to take them and encourage them through the Word of God. And you encourage them to have faith in God. can't help but think in this Christian age that we live in, how many Christians are unbelieving Believers. They're unbelieving believers. Do you know what unbelief is? Unbelief is this. Unbelief is whatever doubts God's word. Unbelief calls God a liar. And actually worse than that, unbelief identifies God as a perjurer. Because not only are you saying that his word is not believable, but that his very oath to you is not believable. It's not true. What's the opposite of that? The opposite of that is faith. Faith unlocks the storehouse of God. Faith breaks open to us the checkbook of God. 
through, the God's, through God's riches and the riches of his word. But unbelief is what puts a barrier between every child and those resources. Someone has said that the church has halted somewhere between Calvary and Pentecost. <laughs> Remember the church, a little embryo, as they were discouraged. Think back with me just for a second. After the crucifixion, just beginning, and the Lord Jesus Christ was in the grave. Ask yourselves, have we got stuck somewhere there in discouragement, in failure, in unbelief? And we haven't walked in, like Hebrews says, into the land of Canaan and promise where the Spirit of God in all his blessings falls on us. Are we unbelieving believers is my question. Now, you have to make a distinction this morning between different kinds of faith. There's a natural faith and there's a spiritual or a supernatural faith. You have to understand, most women, most men have natural faith. And sometimes when you hear some illustrations in gospel preaching about faith, it's no more faith, God's faith, than, you know, anything else. It's, it's just natural faith. There's natural faith. There's faith that you have in your chair that it's going to hold you up. You didn't walk over to your chair and test it out and push on it and say, I don't know if this thing's going to hold me this morning, but we'll try. You, know, you didn't do that. You just plopped yourself down. Why? Because you have faith. You have a natural faith in the ability of that chair to hold you up. That's the faith that men have had when they've had a vision of, say, a telephone or electricity, when they were inventing things, a plane or whatever it might be. And they followed that vision and they actually accomplished it. That's, that's natural faith. This faith that the Word of God speaks of is not natural faith. It's supernatural faith. Spiritual faith, you might say. It has nothing to do with the ability of man. It is a gift given by God because man in his sinful state cannot muster it up in and of ourselves. It's something that gets not just into your intellect and into your mind, but it gets into your very will and your soul and your heart. And it begins to alter your affections. This is something that sets you on fire for the Lord. It's something that's buried deep within your being as a spiritual entity. And it's something that you can't even really define. It's something that God gives us by the Holy Spirit. You know that God loves to be trusted? God just wants to be trusted. Last week at the end of our service, we read out of Malachi and it says, Prove me now, says the Lord. See, that's from a position of faith. It's not some skeptic or atheist going out in a field and say, okay, God, if you're there, struck me with, strike me with lightning. That's not what we're talking about. That's not what he's saying. He's talking to believers, wanting to prove that he is a God who he says he is and that his word is true and that his promises are watertight. Do we prove God daily in our living for him? Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ hated unbelief? He just hated it. Do you remember the occasion in Matthew 9 of Jairus' daughter? We've been through this, but you can turn over there if you want, Matthew 9. And you can read this on your own, but just draw a couple things out of this. He knew that she was dying, and he came, his, her, her father, and he came to the Lord Jesus. And you remember that the Lord Jesus Christ, what did he do? He went to heal the woman with the issue of blood. Remember that little kind of parenthetical miracle in there? And in the meantime, the poor girl's dying to the point where she actually passed away. She died. And that father, that man with tears running down his face was imploring Christ that he would come. And as far as he's concerned, Christ wasn't a bit interested because he was almost kind of ignoring the whole situation. Finally, someone came up to him and tapped him on the shoulder and said, trouble the master no more because the girl's dead. In other words, don't worry about it now. She's dead. Not going to do any good to bring him, bring him there now. And you remember, 
the Lord went with that man to that house, and you remember the scene. And what happened was that they walked in, and the Lord Jesus Christ, who is and who was and who will always be the author of life, stood there over this dead girl, and she, he said, she sleeps. What was their reaction? One of mockery almost. They laughed. They were scorning him. Who does he think he is? Saying that this little girl is sleeping. What a horrible thing to say to someone who just lost their child. Does he not know that a, what a dead body looks like? This, this little girl's dead. And then you notice the, the point in time where it says that he put them out. It says they laughed at him in verse 24. But when the crowd had been put outside. See that? You think, well, wait a minute. If he's there to do a miracle, you think he'd want all those people there to see it. Right? I mean, isn't that why they do all these miracles on TV? They have a big crusade and they invite all these people. They bring them up on stage in front of everybody and, quote, heal them. Not so with Jesus. What did he do? It says he put them out. Why did he do that? Because Christ always puts out unbelief. He hates it. Has the Lord Jesus Christ, let me ask you this morning, put out unbelief in your own life? What discourages me more than anything is when I find Christians who will not believe the Word of God. And even in my own life, at times, an unbelief in my own heart concerning the Word of God and what God wants to do, what God can do. And sometimes, because the circumstances are so big, we lose heart in God's Word. We lose faith. We have unbelief. It's interesting sometimes how we look at faith and people that come along and say, well, don't get too fanatical. I mean, I want to I get some faith in my life, but I don't want to become one of those born-again, crazy-eyed Christians, you know, that actually see God change their life and are interested in sharing the Word of God with others. I mean, I don't want to go that far. And sometimes you, God gives you a vision or gives you a short-term or a long-range goal that maybe you believe God, you're believing God to, to work through you in this fashion or whatever, and someone comes along and just slowly they just burst your bubble. That's what unbelief is. That's what we're talking about here. People who will not believe God because they can't believe God. They don't want anybody else to believe God either. The little poem that says, Oh, for a faith that will not shrink, though pressed by many a foe, that will not tremble on the brink of poverty or woe. Beloved, I look around and, and, and I see this Bay Area and I say, you know what? It's not like we live in, in the Bible Belt there's a lot of people out there that are lost and dying and on their way, the fast track to hell. I mean, do you pray for more people to be saved, for more souls to be saved? Do you pray for more people in our chairs here at church? Do you pray for more children to minister to? Do you pray for the day, the week when we can say, you know what, we can't even drain the baptismal because people are getting baptized every week. We've got to fill it up every week. Do you pray for parking issues? The day when our parking lot will be full and the neighbors will be complaining? When we look around and say, where are we going to put all these kids? We, we don't have enough room. Do you pray and do you believe that God will do great things through this church? Or are you sitting there this morning saying, well, yeah, that happened before. You know, circumstances, church splits, whatever. Are you still believing that God can do that? I could see if we lived in the Bible Belt and there was a church on every corner and everybody was saved around us. Hey, I don't have an issue with that. But you know what? On the other hand, we're, I mean, there's people all around us who need to hear the gospel of Christ. See, and our role as a church is not to invite a bunch of non-believers here into our church. I mean, hey, if they came, praise God. They're more than welcome. They'd hear the truth. But see, the purpose of the local church is to equip the believers of God to take the word of God out into a lost and dying world so that we could see lives transformed by his truth. 
Do you believe that God can use you in this community where you work, where you play, where you eat, whatever you do out there? Do you believe that God can use you to take his word, his truth, and transform people's lives? See, it's not you. You're just, as we began, you're just the message boy. You know, you're, you're just a person who's taken the truth of God to these people. But I think we've grown cold in our view and our belief that, yeah, that's how God wants to do it. Well, it is our prayer here at Graceful Truth that God would reveal His grace to your hearts through the teaching of His Word each week. And we trust you're currently involved in a Bible teaching church in your area. If not, we'd love to have you come and visit us here at Grace Bible Church in Redwood City. We meet each Sunday morning for our praise and worship service at 10 a.m. We offer nursery care and Sunday school classes for our children up to grade five. If you'd like to encourage us here at Graceful Truth, please give us a call at Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. This is our phone number, 650-366-9923. Again, that's 650-366-9923. Or you can visit us on the web at gracefultruth.org. We've got a lot of resource materials available there, more information about who we are. And if you need a map to visit us at Grace Bible Church, that's there as well. Again, gracefultruth.org. And would you please drop us an email? Let us know you paid us a visit when you stop by. Again, gracefultruth.org. Or give us a call at 650-366-9923. Again, that's 650-366-9923. We thank you for joining us today and trust we'll see you again next week at this same time for another broadcast of Graceful Truth. Graceful Truth.